Welcome to Meditations with Zohar. I'm thrilled to be here with Jennifer Frey, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina, although um, perhaps by the time you listen to this, uh, she'll be in a new role as the Dean of an Honors Program at the University of Tulsa, where she's going to be spearheading an effort to promote the study of wisdom through uh, engagement with classical texts. And in addition to all of that, she has a podcast of her own called Sacred and Profane Love, which features discussions at the intersection of theology and literature. Uh, and so it's a pleasure to have you. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Maybe my first question would be, how do you define wisdom? Why do we look to the classics for wisdom? And where else can we look that is maybe more unconventional um, if we're wisdom seekers? So wisdom, I think, is best understood by contrast to something more familiar, which is expertise, right? So if you're an expert in something, then you are very skilled, very knowledgeable in one area, Right. So we can just call on you for your expertise. Like maybe you're an, an expert on Civil War history or you're an expert, um, I don't know, and on taffeta dresses <laughs> or, or right. Lots of forms of expertise are practical, you know, like you're um, you're a plumber or whatever. Right. But the point is that you have a certain kind of specialized knowledge uh, and we can count on you when we need to draw on that sort of specialized knowledge, but it doesn't transfer, <laughs> right? It doesn't generalize. So um, there's no reason why I would expect my plumber to help me figure out who I should vote for um, or what to think about the First Amendment. And likewise, there's no reason to suspect that a professor in constitutional jurisprudence is going to be able to help me out around the house, right? So we, we just kind of recognize um, the expertise functions in this way. And then wisdom is basically the opposite of that, right? I mean, someone who is wise is someone who has a kind of universal knowledge, right? Or, I mean... Uh, some, I'm kind of drawing on John Henry Newman there, but he also calls universal knowledge philosophical knowledge, right? So this is a kind of general knowledge about fundamental matters that pertain to human beings. And of course, in the classical tradition, there is this distinction drawn between theoretical wisdom and practical wisdom. So sort of like Theoretical wisdom is a very general knowledge of the highest things, whereas practical wisdom is being able to uh, order things in your life or perhaps order things politically on a very general level. And then maybe like other people can execute your, your plans or your ideas. Uh, but in both cases, uh, we use wisdom in both cases to reflect the idea that this is a a general universal knowledge that is a, it's a different kind of knowledge than expertise and it requires a very different kind of training. That was a really thorough and wonderful answer. Um, maybe um, on the question of why do we look to the classics for wisdom and where else can we look if we're in pursuit of it? Yeah, so, you know, why look to the classics? I mean, when I think about 
what we might call the a classical liberal arts education, um, where liberal education is kind of um, the education that it befits someone who's going to be a leader of some kind, um, an education that befits someone who's interested in becoming free, right? And in some special sense, then I think we're thinking of wisdom, um, at least first and foremost in a, in a practical register. So, um, we want, we want to be seeking, um, a kind of wisdom that would allow someone to understand what it means to be a good human being and citizen, um, to steal a little line from, from Plato. And, uh, I think that when it comes to studying the classics, uh, those are a very important resource, uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that there's no chance of becoming practically wise without memory. Um, Right. I mean, you just kind of have to understand uh, where human beings have been generally, if you want to understand who we are now and try to discern what the way forward is. So I think that understanding of cultural memory um, is actually incredibly important to being liberally educated and to being wise. But I would also say in a general way that um, Studying classical texts is basically um, looking at the sources of the sorts of questions and problems that classical education generally is oriented around. And so it just kind of makes sense to start there. Um, you don't end there, right? It's a starting point. It's a, it's a kind of first principle of inquiry. It's a starting point. Um, and there's no expectation that you're going to come out of that kind of education um, being a Platonist or being an Aristotelian or, or whatever. The idea is just that you will come out of that sort of education understanding what dialectic is, <laughs> understanding the value of it, um, and just being a much better thinker in general. How do we make the leap from being better thinkers to being better agents? Do you, do you feel that thought is practical or is it possible to be a theoretically wise person and a practical idiot, so to say? Well, certainly Aristotle thought um, that you could be, right? So when he's talking about practical wisdom in the sixth book of the Nicomachean Ethics, he... Um, I was talking about, I think it's Anaxagoras. And he's like, oh, he really understands the heavens and the stars, but like can't tie his shoes and you definitely don't want him in charge of anything. <laughs> and um, and look, I think we we all know, um, we all know the stereotype, right, of the befuddled, you know, absent-minded professor um, who is sort of brilliant, but like, you know, needs somebody to constantly find his car keys or whatever. Um and I, and I think that that's, I think that that's a reality. Um, I mean, I've certainly been in contact with that. Um, but I also think that just focusing on cases like that um, downplays the ways in which right thinking and uh, being a good person in in some sense are are more intimately related. 
So if you think about the sorts of habits, just even the sorts of intellectual habits that you need to cultivate um, in order to engage in the kind of free and open dialectic that is at the heart, for example, of philosophical inquiry, you do need to cultivate certain habits of character as well. And the reason that you need to do that is because dialectical exchange only really works well, not when you're just trying to dominate or vanquish the other person, but when you are able to hear them and understand them and take them seriously and enter into a real search for the truth together, right? And that does take, I believe, certain habits of character. I also think it just takes certain habits of character just to enter into the discipline of study. Um, and I think that if you look carefully at the tradition, uh, there's all kinds of acknowledgement of this. For example, um, you know, the, the whole idea of studiositas as opposed to curiositas. Studiositas is um, a virtue that habituates your appetite, your desire for knowledge. And the whole conceit of studiositas is the idea that your appetite for knowledge can become profoundly disordered. It can be motivated by pride or jealousy rather than love of the truth. Um, and that insofar as your appetite for knowledge has the wrong motivations, it becomes profoundly disordered and bad, right? And so your desire for inquiry doesn't, in fact, lead you to wisdom, but somewhere else. And I think that if we take that seriously, and I think we absolutely need to take that very seriously, then we see that even though we can distinguish theoretical wisdom and practical wisdom, uh, in some sense, right, the moral life and the intellectual life are bound up with one another. And, and I think that's right. And I think that in history, in literature, in myth, we see this. We see it again and again and again. It's right there in Prometheus, right? I mean, it's right there. I find that super resonant and inspiring. And especially when I look to ancient examples, I see the fit between the intellectual and the moral. But when we get more modern and contemporary, it seems like the two tracks diverge. So I'll give you an example. Um, when I was a graduate student at Oxford, uh, I had the unique experience of being in some discussion groups with other grad students in philosophy. And I was pretty taken aback by the cultural vibe uh, in that room. <laughs> Yeah. In which what it, was the vibe? The vibe was like a person would make a statement and then get attacked by every single person in the room. And it felt like an ego contest to prove how good you were at attacking the other person and showing that they were wrong. And to the point of paralysis, because you couldn't even make your actual sort of more bold statement in pursuit of something without just getting like death by a thousand paper cuts. Right. So I guess that is the, very real. What you're had, pointing out is very real. I had a couple questions on that. Like one is, I mean, many, many questions, but one is, is that, um, is that dialectic or is no. that a distortion? <laughs> yeah, no, that's not dialectic. 
No, that's uh, what St. Augustine called the libido dominandi. Um, and but that I mean, seems to be what gets people promoted, at least in my like anecdotal experience. It seems like the kind of ability to flex your raw intellectual muscle, like this kind of, and it is, I felt like it was gendered, but like this kind of bravado of showing that you're the smartest person in the room because you can find the flaw in the way the statement was articulated instead of the most charitable person in the room who can elevate the spirit of the statement and seek to make, you know, make it as wise as possible was the kind of thing that would get you published and thus promoted. So like, why is that the case? How did that happen? And to the extent that like philosophy as you understand it is not always the same as professional philosophy. Why, why did philosophy become professional philosophy in this sort of Augustinian sense that you described of like ego worship? Yeah, I mean, it's such a great, it's such a great question. And the short answer is, I don't know. I don't know when philosophy became deformed in this way. It certainly was always that way, you know, from my introduction to it. Um, I will say that I think it's bad. It took me a while to see this. Um, and what happened was early in my career, once I was on the tenure track, I started doing a lot of interdisciplinary work. And so I started going to conferences and events that weren't run by philosophers. They were either run by theologians or people in the social sciences um, or people in let's just say literary studies broadly construed. And I was really struck by the profound difference in culture. And I'm like, oh, everyone's not just cutting everyone down and cutting everyone off. And it's not like like people are listening to one another and they're they're like many of the responses were meant to be helpful. <laughs> like sort of, oh well, have you considered this? And maybe this would help your argument, which like never happens and <laughs> in philosophy. And I was really struck. And um, I, I sort of realized that, yeah, something was pretty off in my discipline. Um, but I will also say that I have many true intellectual friends in philosophy. Um, and those friendships have have sustained me throughout my career. And the difference is that those people um, are interested in helping me. Um, they're interested in helping me better understand what I think and why. And so when they engage and critique, it's in the spirit of kind of cooperation rather than competition and domination. And so while I don't know why philosophy is like this, um, or, uh, and I mean, I don't know, but I do think that the way to change that uh, academic culture, right, is just by modeling a different way. Um, I mean, there's no other, I mean, that, I, I just don't know any other way to get people to see that, you know, this is really weird. And actually, the thing is, it's counterproductive, right? Sure, it'll get you published. Sure, it might get a couple of people nice jobs. But it certainly doesn't do a, an effective job of bringing people into the discipline who don't already enjoy that kind of combat. And, um, you know, when we look at, like, the gender representation in philosophy, um, 
if you just look at the demographics of philosophy, um, I think that there is a connection between the fact that, you know, women aren't so attracted to the discipline and the fact that it's so combative and pugnacious rather than cooperative. Um, and so when people are like, oh, we just need to put more women on the syllabus, I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't really actually think that's the problem here. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, I've, in my own way, I've kind of moved on. I, I mean, I, I'm sort of very interested right now in general undergraduate education and in getting people at a much earlier stage um, in their development and showing them, like, no matter what they want to do, um, you know, most students are obviously going to want to go into some kind of professional track. But showing them that, like, no matter where they're headed, the value of philosophical modes of inquiry and dialectic and pursuing study for its own sake as a way of preparing yourself for life, right? Um, that's kind of what I'm passionate about at the moment, uh, rather than uh, winning arguments with other philosophers, which just does not thrill me anymore. We're fortunate that you've that you moved in that direction. Um, I had a couple hypotheses to my own question. I'd love to run by you. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, <laughs> I love it because outsider perspectives are so valuable. So. Let's bracket the issue of incentives, because as, as you pointed out, like those academic incentives are cross-disciplinary, and yet philosophy seems to have its own unique cultural issues separate, let's say, than social science or humanities. What about the idea that once upon a time people actually sought truth? And so if you're actually seeking transcendent truth, then you have to be collaborative because you know it's not about you. But once you accept the positivist turn in philosophy, and that essentially the job is just a kind of um, custodianship or you know, a janitorial duty almost towards just making sure that propositions are valid <laughs> and, and coherent, that that sort of lowers the aspiration of philosophy. And when the stakes are low, um, the, the egos run hot because there's sort of no truth with a capital T to, to sort of keep you in that state of awe. And instead, you're, you feel more emboldened um, because of this sort of positivism. Like, I don't know if that would actually check out in terms of uh, our positivists more like this than non-positivists. But that would be one thought. Another is almost the opposite thought, which is if a person is so single-mindedly focused on the truth, do they lose the um, value of empathy? And so a person becomes almost like robotic in the way that they're approaching the question to the detriment of like the softer dimensions of life, which might from a philosophical point of view just be seen as a waste of time or inefficient. You often see like, um, well not often, but like I'll give you an example from Judaism, the Vilna Gon was supposedly um, such a scholar that he never wasted a single minute. He like would wake himself up in the middle of the night by putting his feet in buckets of ice and he just learned all day long. <laughs> And he didn't have time to talk to his sister. And he said to her, like, oh, my dear, like, we'll talk in the next world. Like, God put me on, like, put me on earth to learn Torah. Like, he didn't put me on earth to, like, make small talk. Um, so those would be maybe two. And then the third is just the question of self-knowledge is really important in philosophy. 
like from from Socrates, self-examination. But for whatever reason, the role that we've assigned to, I don't know if you want to call it therapy or psychoanalysis, what meditation, some some form of introspection has gone by the wayside. And so there's an assumption that we don't need to self-examination anymore. And so it, what we see is just the result of a philosophy that's pursuing something out there without the focus on the subject. So those are, I don't know how those three relate to one another or don't, but what do you? <laughs> okay, so we've got positivism, asceticism, and the therapeutic. Am I, am yeah. I tracking you? Okay, that was good. <laughs> okay, so positivism. I mean, I'm not a positivist. I don't like positivism. Uh, it's kind of funny, though, anecdotally, that the one super committed positivist that I know, which is Liam Kofi Bright, um, is actually one of the most generous interlocutors I've ever met. <laughs> so, but, you know, I don't know if if Liam is the exception to the rule. Um, I mean, so I guess in response to that, I would say, well, I certainly don't think positivism was a positive development in philosophy, but I would also, um, I'm kind of skeptical that we can put this problem on them. Um, I think that if you look at um, the institutional landscape of philosophy in the 19th and 20th century, probably the answer is there. Like, Like it's like it's honestly probably an institutional problem, um, but but I don't know. Um, I, I I tend to be skeptical of blaming any one thing <laughs> when we're looking at this gnarly, you know, cultural phenomenon. Um, but look, I'll concede. I don't think positivism helped. <laughs> like uh, so, as far as like asceticism and being. Um, kind of uniquely devoted to the intellectual life such that you, you know, kind of crowd out all other aspects of human experience. Um, I guess, I think it depends. I think it depends. So that is to say, it depends on the the practices of asceticism and and sort of like the person's um, self-understanding of um, his or her pursuit of inquiry in light of those standards, because I don't have any problem with asceticism per se, right? There's plenty of asceticism in my own religious tradition, which is Catholicism. And I, um, I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, well, that was like a weird thing that we used to do, but it's, we're all so enlightened now. Um, I think some practices of asceticism were, were maybe a bit too much, but, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to drag like the desert fathers <laughs> um, and pretend that I am more wise than them. However, I will say this, that most practices of asceticism in Christianity were practices within a community. And um, not all of them, but most of them. And I think that communal life just does require, like if it's going to be healthy, just does require uh, the cultivation of certain positive habits of character. Um, and so you can see all the ways that that would be beneficial to intellectual pursuits. Um, but I think a certain amount of asceticism is necessary for the intellectual life. Um, and, but it just, you know, (laughs) we need to have wisdom about it. Um, and then for the therapeutic, that is, (laughs) Yeah, 
Um, we should all just reread Lash on the therapeutic. <laughs> meaning, meaning you're skeptical of, uh, of the endeavor to, to pursue a kind of self-knowledge through the therapeutic or how Well, you- I think that therapeutic modes of, uh, so I, I would say that I'm very influenced by Christopher Lash on this question. And, um, I think that the, it depends on what we mean by therapeutic, right? But I think um, insofar as we understand the therapeutic as kind of like emphasizing feelings over truth and reality, I think it's a distortion. That doesn't, I mean, because what I'm trying to say is that when things are going well, a human person, which is both a thinking and feeling animal, (laughs) Right. These things are are well integrated. Right. So um, a real intellectual isn't unfeeling. Uh, right. I mean, that just doesn't that just doesn't make sense for us. Uh, that would make sense for angelic beings or other creatures that don't, you know, don't have bodies, aren't aren't human. Uh, but we are human. And I just think that in order for our minds to be well-ordered, the rest of us kind of has to get in line. Um, and, and so, no, I don't think of exemplars of the intellectual life as um, being unfeeling. I don't think that's the correct model. And I don't think that people that I look up to as exemplars are people like that. Um, people are passionate, <laughs> right? The only question is, people are passionate, we're creatures of habit, and the only question is whether our passions and our habits are in a line with what's real and uh, what's good and what's true. I guess, I guess on the therapeutic, the question is, is there like a philosophical import to understanding how your dynamics with people might be informed by, let's say, early childhood stuff, um, such that if you wanted to fulfill the platonic or Socratic mandate, you would actually need to um, reflect upon your knee-jerk reactions to people, your sort of unconscious judgments and biases, and you wouldn't just be able to accept your conscious um, judgments as sort of the first and last word. Like if you have issues with authority, you know, either you're, you're sort of, um, you're always looking to the person at the front of the room as an authority or the opposite. You want to take them down a peg. It might be helpful to think about what kind of home you grew up in. And <laughs> Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, look, I don't think that things that happened to you as a child are, are like deterministic in any sense. Um, but having said that, I also think that um, reflecting about your... Um, biases and initial responses is always good and important, right? I mean, I might not have a really Freudian angle on that, um, but but I but I think that that's important. And I would say generally that um, self criticism and self reflection is important. But I actually think what's more important because I think self criticism is is actually pretty limited. Right. Because because if you actually believe that you're opaque to yourself, then critiquing yourself isn't 
all that valuable because it's a little bit like the blind leading the blind. Uh, I actually It's think, almost like refinancing your mortgage. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I love that. Sorry, I'm buying and selling a house now. So uh, somehow this seems funnier to me than normal. Um, like, look, I can pay off this debt with more debt. <laughs> with more debt. <laughs> exactly. Um I mean, this is why I think that community is is actually so important to the intellectual life. Um, and that's because other people can see you better than you see yourself. I mean, I mean, I think that's just true. And so a huge part of coming to self-knowledge is like listening to other people and taking their perspectives on you seriously. Um, and the best people to listen to are people who are your friends. That is to say, people who like are committed to your to your good, <laughs> who are, who genuinely will your good. Um, and you know, these are people that, um, you, you need to listen to them when, when they're pointing out things, uh, that you don't want to hear because the truth is like, we are very protective of ourselves and it is very difficult for us to see reality and see ourselves clearly um, but of course, if we're going to make progress in the intellectual life, we do actually need to see reality clearly and understand ourselves better. And so again, that's why I think we need this give and take, right? Where people are mutually invested in the common good of searching for wisdom together. And that's perfectly compatible with solitude, by the way, uh, because we all know that the intellectual life also requires solitude, like you just got to get in your cell and write and read, right? You need quiet, but but then you also need to enter into that exchange. And so I just think that it's both and. I think we would be a very fortunate society if we all had good friends. Although it's a bit of a chicken or egg problem, right? How do you how do you find and cultivate good friends if sort of the raw material isn't there or there's a limited supplier? Again, like um, I think what you said about a friend is someone who wills the good for you is such a beautiful uh, aspiration to find friends like that. Um, but how many of us, as we're growing up, have friends who are more transactional uh, towards us or that we're more transactional to it? I think it takes a certain maturity in yourself and in the other person, kind of almost like with romantic love. Um, finding a good friend is very hard. It is. It is. Especially in our culture where I think friendship is both misunderstood and devalued, right? Um, and and I think young people in particular, but especially now, um, just don't have good models of friendship, right? Where they, where they um, see like a really healthy, beautiful friendship and they want that for themselves. Um, I think those examples are getting thinner and thinner and harder to see. And I think that contributes to the fact that, you know, young people now are just very, very unhappy and anxious and because um, they don't they don't have real friends. Uh, there's just there's just something really missing at the center of their lives. Um, yeah, there's there's that line, I think, attributed to Aristotle by Nietzsche cited in uh, Derrida's The Politics of Friendship, oh, oh friend, there are no friends, um, which has, it's paradoxical because there are no friends in the plural, 
but oh friend you're speaking to somebody presumably your friend complaining that there are no friends so do right. you have friendship <laughs> right in that person that you're complaining to like right. maybe yes maybe no yeah um, well i mean i think that there are different kinds of friendship right i mean aristotle talks about three different kinds of friendship but there are possibly more but he talks about friendships of pleasure friendships of utility and then like real friendships uh, and then friendships that are sort of like analogous <laughs> to any of these. Um, but I mean, I think we're all more or less familiar um, with friendships of utility, right? Um, people that are useful to us. But as soon as they stop being useful to us, like the basis of the affection kind of dries up. Um, and that's not, you know, that, that's, a, that's a lower form of friendship, um, and then friendships of pleasure. I mean, I think most young people, the only models they're really given are friendships of pleasure. And as Aristotle says, I mean, that's, that's not stable, right? And it's not very deep. And, and your pleasure friends aren't going to be uh, at your graveside. They're not going to be at your deathbed. They're not even probably going to be at your funeral. Um, and they kind of come and go throughout your life. And um, the thing is that real human happiness um, needs more than that. Because human, human needs are much deeper than pleasure. This is a difficult question to formulate, but it has to do with maybe reading the ancients in context versus out of context. So, um, and you have a similar emphasis on friendship also in rabbinic sources as well. And there's something undeniably like homosocial about it. Um, at least the way that I approach it. Again, I'm not saying that this is how it has to be read, but something where it makes me wonder, you know, what, were th what was their relationship to their wives? Um, like, if they had good marriages, so to say, if they related to their partners as equals, would they have placed such a premium on the kind of extramarital friendship? Or did they kind of disambiguate the role and sort of assign intimacy to their sort of male compadre or their their cohort of philosophers or Torah scholars, and then they saw their wives more as, you know, that's for bearing children and, you know, household chores and something like that. And so if that's the case, like, what are we supposed to do in a more modern society with, with those examples given, uh, maybe you'll disagree with my read, but given the context doesn't really match our experience, at least, you know, those, who, those of us who, who, live, who have accepted some of the ambience of modernism and progressivism. Yeah. Okay. So I think that's fair. I mean, look, I think that um, when you're talking about a, a homo, you call it a homosocial um, context, like, you know, the ancient world where women just um, aren't really valued um, to the degree that they ought to be. Um, I mean, in, in some sense, like, they're not really valued except in terms of their utility, right? Their, their childbearing functions. Um, then, of course, you get various distortions that affect things. But my view has always been that um, the core, right, the, the core notions um, transcend the cultural limitations and contexts in which they came to be. If I weren't committed to that, then 
my relationship to ancient texts would be very different, right? It would just be like, well, that's super fascinating that they used to think all this stuff, uh, but like it's not ancient Athens anymore. So who cares about, you know, teleology <laughs> or, or whatever? Um, that's not my view. That's not my relationship to ancient texts, right? Um, I think that there are, um, I think that there is something to it that transcends those limitations because, of course, um, I think that men and women are, in all relevant respects, equals. Um, and so I think that when we think about, um, for example, Aristotle's thoughts on friendship in a contemporary context, uh, we kind of take the core of it um, and think about how it applies given our cultural context, right? Which is not the same. And people, I mean, people have different views about this. Um, so there are a lot of people um, in my context, right? Who would argue that um, outside of marriage, right? Outside of the friendship with your wife, like men shouldn't really be friends with women. Um, I think that's not true. <laughs> um, but there are certainly lots of people who would argue for that. And the reason that they would argue for it is to preserve the intimacy of marriage and also like this sort of this idea that men and women can't really be friends because like somehow it'll always end up that they're sleeping together. Again, I think that's not true. Um, and that if we took what Aristotle said about the necessity of virtue for friendship, we wouldn't have these fears, right? If we recognize that real friendship requires virtue. So that would mean it requires temperance and chastity, <laughs> right? Then it's like, we don't, right? We wouldn't. We wouldn't say that men and women can't be friends. Um, so I think that there's nothing about the cultural context of ancient Athens um, that prevents you from taking Aristotle on friendship seriously. And I also think that um, there just there just are interesting debates about like how to apply this. Um, and you know, it's not like it's not like people who have the view that I don't like are morons or that they don't have a point. I mean, they do in a sense. I mean, they are responding to a certain reality. Um, I, I just don't, I don't think the account of friendship behind it uh, or possibly even the account of women <laughs> behind it is, is a correct one. Right. And also, if you're coming from the point of view of defining what friendship ought to be, that's very different from starting with the reality that m people don't live up to the virtuous definition. Right. So exactly. you might be talking past each other. Like, I think, exactly. right, you, you could um, you could agree at the theoretical level and disagree at the practical level. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, how um, do we apply it? Mm -hmm. My my question where I was coming from wasn't exactly the line you went down, but but was going towards, um, I think, so friendship is this very important thing in philosophy. And as you mentioned, it's also something that is very opaque and difficult to grasp in contemporary life because we don't have great models of it, especially the sort of highest level. 
And I think、um, what could help friendship is if it had ritual. And marriage has a lot of ritual. And like marriage also has fundamentally commitment at its heart because the way that you go from not being married to married is you make a, a vow.、Uh, you know, if you like it, then you better put a ring on it. And like we don't really have that in the world of friendship. And I think it creates a lot of ambiguity and also a lot of pain as sort of relationship, friendship relationships might go up or down, but without necessarily this、um, sense of what you owe the friend or are owed by the friend. In, in contradistinction, let's say, to a more formalized relationship like marriage, or you could even throw in, like, let's say, having a job, you know,、um, employment at will. Like, <laughs>、um, so I don't know if, I guess that. There's a question in there, I think, which is like,、um, given the importance of friendship on the one hand, and given at the same time how we're not doing a good job in the modern world of cultivating healthy friendship,、um, what can we do practically to give friendship the renaissance it needs? And if it's not to be found exclusively within marriage, Um, but at the same time, marriage does hold up, I think, some positive examples for friendship, maybe a last refuge for it. Then, what can we derive from it, from, from marriage to friendship, or from other examples where,、um, where we can see that friendship is institutionalized? Yeah. Gosh, that's such a great question. I mean, I, I totally take your point about. How, yeah, the customs and, and maybe the habits aren't there. And so we, we're, not, we're not always clear about what the demands of friendship really are, what the norms governing it are.、Um, I think that's really right.、Um, I don't, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean,、uh, I really, it's a great question and I'd, I'd have to give it a lot of thought. And I do think that anyone who is doing work on trying to put friendship back at the center, right? It's kind of resurrect a, a robust account of friendship as, you know, really at the heart of human flourishing, would have to think really critically about that because you, you, can't, you can't, as an individual, like will this into being, right? And、um, yeah, but I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Perfect.、Um, the, best, yeah. the best conclusion. Uh, so, um, moving a little bit back towards something you said before in passing about the importance of memory as part of what it means to become wise is sort of remembering cultural memory, remembering what has happened before us. That's very evocative to me for a couple of reasons. One, obviously, is the distinction that、um, Socrates makes in the Phaedrus between remembering and reminding, right? And the sort of oral dimension of philosophy versus the written dimension, which I think kind of maps as well onto the distinction you made between、um, wisdom and expertise, expertise being a kind of, you know, Written thing or flashy thing or you know, pointable thing, and wisdom being this sort of more mysterious thing. But it's also evocative to me because there's a Jewish、um, historian named Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi who wrote a book called Zahor, which means memory or remember.、Um, one of the most important words in the Hebrew Bible is 
God's um, commandment to remember, to remember the exodus from Egypt, to remember the creation. And uh, Yerushalmi contrasts the imperative to remember, which he sees as a pre-modern way of being in the world, to the modern historian's orientation to the past, which is um, one of, let's say, fact-finding and, yes, interpretation, but not memory, which has this more immediate and instinctual and intuitive thing going on in it. And also that the, the historian is a specialist, right, an expert, whereas memory is for everyone. So on Passover night, all Jews sit around and tell the story of the Exodus. They engage in an act of memory. That's very different from, let's say, the archaeologist's um, quest to reconstruct what happened <laughs> in ancient Egypt, if there even was an Exodus. So um, I guess like in that question is, what does it actually mean to remember? And how do you distinguish remembering from historicism, which might be about putting things in their context, explaining how things came to be, um, but not necessarily developing the identification with the past or the feeling that your ancestors are a part of you? Yeah, I mean, I guess this is kind of, you know, the conservative in me and thinking that I feel like everyone's a conservative about something, right? Um, and and I do think that tradition is is so fundamental to human identity and your ability to um, not just see yourself in the present. Like the thing about human beings um, is that we are historical creatures. Um, and the way that we experience time reflects that. And so that we don't just we don't just ever live in the in the present, and we shouldn't strive to just live. When everyone says, "Oh, just live in the present," it just drives me nuts. Um, I'm like, well, you know, I I don't really think that's the kind of thing that I am actually. Um, you know, the past bears critically on the present, and the future bears on the past, and so does the present, right? Uh, like T.S. Eliot really nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> for Cortez. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I am. Um, <laughs> it, would, it would help us if his opinions were more politically co correct. It, it, it does kind of beg the question, right? If, if his view of time is, um, is inherently reactionary. Although I'm, I, I agree with you that he nailed it, but. <laughs> I mean, look, I mean, I think, uh, I, I always try to separate the our artist as the person from from the art as, as a separate work. Um, like Elliot was a flawed guy. Um, I'm not sure at all that I agree th that I would assent to the characterization that he was a reactionary. I, I don't think that's fair to him. Um, but let's not, but let's just like set Elliot aside. Um, you can listen to my, everyone can listen to my podcast on Elliot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for the record, I'm a I'm an I'm a huge Eliot admirer as a a poet, and and obviously I have no right to talk because I specialize in canceled thinkers. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, but anyway, um, you know, in terms of our relationship to the past, I, I mean, I, one thing that really, to be honest, kind of scares me. In addition to just frustrating me 
is how ignorant young people are now of history um, and kind of this inability to, um, I don't know, to see its value. <laughs> um, and, and I think that this isn't their fault, right? I mean, it's our fault. It's the way that we're educating them or failing to educate them. And, um, you know, I think it's a, I, I think it's a huge problem. I think it's a political problem, actually. Uh, like, like this is bad for a democracy, um, to have a citizenry that doesn't, right, um, n not only doesn't know the history, but, but it isn't engaged in it in the relevant way, uh, which isn't just like learning a bunch of facts, right? But seeing as it were like a story unfolding, like there, you know, and understanding oneself um, in that story. And, um, and, and I think that, I mean, for me, there is wisdom in the past and, um, there's much for us to learn from it. Of course, there's also horror and terror and chaos in the past as well, but there is wisdom there. And, um, this kind of idea that, well, well we're just so much smarter now, or we're such better people now. I don't believe that at all. Um, I mean, I sort of, I, I just have a lot of humility <laughs> or I try to have a lot of humility about how enlightened we may or may not be at this point. Um, and so I guess I would just say that in terms of thinking more critically about what memory is, I would see it in narrative terms, right? And, and I would see it in terms of a, ki a kind of human story and um, the value of, of understanding that in terms of your own identity, right? And your own understanding of who you are, right? You weren't actually just thrown, well, in some sense, you obviously were just thrown into it, but um, you don't come from nowhere, right? Your society didn't come, you know, fully formed. Um, it, it, has, it has a story and, and you need to really understand that story. And you need to have an attitude of learning from the past um, and seeing the ways that it bears on the pe present and the future. And uh, I, think, I think that we have lost that. And, and I think that's a huge problem, um, right? It's a, and it's not just a problem in terms of higher education, right? Because higher education and its problems are always in some sense going to reflect the problems of primary and secondary education. Um, and so, like, we have to think about this in both contexts. Do you think there was a time when we were better at this sort of narrative uh, inculcation? And if so, why did we stop being as good at it? I think there was a time, uh, certainly, when... Um, people kind of took it for granted that history was important and valuable um, and that it was a very important thing to study if you were going to be a leader. And I think we've lost that, like for sure. I mean, I, I saw us lose that in my own life. Is that because of postmodernism? Because there was that sort of like French informed view, like from Lyotard that 
grand narratives are over. Is 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 that is that the cause of it, or is it something sort of more banal, like just the time the time horizon has been compressed because people's sort of needs and responsibilities are just operating on a more you know minute to minute hour by hour basis and so it's just harder to pause and take stock of the the hundred year view the thousand year view yeah again i mean i just don't think that leotard is that powerful um i don't think that i mean look let me let me put postmodernism in the same boat as positivism because it's fun like i don't like either of them (laughs) But I just don't, again, I just don't think that you can lay, right? I mean, these kinds of cultural shifts um, are, there are so many different aspects that explain the change. Um, I I don't, I don't know how, I mean, for example, just look at, for example, the um, number of people in this country studying history. Or look, I mean, there are like certain metrics that you can look at. Um, And of course, we can look at people's knowledge, like really basic knowledge of history, which is abysmal in this country. Like it's truly abysmal. Um, I don't think it was any one thing that explains that. But I think one thing you can definitely say is that people don't have any sense of its value anymore. Right. People don't expect leaders in any sense, whether they're political leaders or corporate leaders or whatever, uh, they don't think that a deep knowledge of history is requisite anymore. Why is that, right? Um, and uh, while I don't really know the answer, like I, you know, um, I think you can you can diagnose the problem um, and just see it as a problem. I agree with that. But so there's that line, right? Those who don't, Santayana, those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. Um, there's there's some like riff on that, that those who study history are also doomed to repeat it. Um, and you have sort of these skeptics in, you know, finance, um, like Nassim Taleb, who would sort of, you know, say that people who have had a winning strategy um, over a long career are going to wipe out if they keep applying that strategy because it only works in a normal world, whereas they don't have the ability to foresee black swans or sort of these outlier events that come once in a lifetime or once in a century. So we get a kind of arrogance. I wonder I wonder if that relates to the um, diminishment of history is that sort of if you live in a time of crisis or you've lived through a bunch of crisis, you question whether um, past precedent can actually help you navigate those crises because you experience those crises as new. So you disidentify with the past. You say, ah, Napoleon, that's a different world. Abraham Lincoln, that's a different world. Martin Luther King, that's a different world. They, you know, they were great in their time, but they can't help me here because this is totally new. Yeah, I mean, I guess I just disagree that anything in human life is really all that new. <laughs> I mean, what I see when I study the tradition is real patterns, right? Um, And such that you can almost start to predict not future events, but just sort of like the ways that human beings are just going to keep harming themselves and others over and over and over again. And look, um, I don't I'm not saying that if you know history, like you're not going to make any mistakes Or, you know, it doesn't, I mean, of course you're going to keep making mistakes. We're all human, 
right? Um, but what I am saying is that knowledge of history is, is fundamental to being wise and that being wise is way more important than having expertise. Um, and so for me, it's just part of trying to recover wisdom as the highest form of knowledge that we aspire to have and recognizing that it's different and recognizing that, especially in higher education, but I would also say really for all education, we're too focused on specialized forms of knowledge. And we are creating very few people who can think and reason well in terms of a bigger picture. And I think that's basically a disaster. <laughs> and, and, I, and I honestly think that's just kind of common sense. Like if you stop to think about that for a minute, you'd be like, yeah, that's not good, right? We actually do need people who can think in terms of the big picture in, in a systematic way. And you're obviously not going to get there. Um, just by creating a bunch of experts, right? Um, There's that book, um, Range, that, that makes a similar argument. Um, I don't know if you've come across it, but it contrasts Tiger Woods with Andre Agassi as the starting point. With, with Woods is um, the specialist. He, he started golfing when he was three, I think. And Agassi like, started just playing lots of sports, and I don't think he got into tennis until he was in high school. So, I mean, I just wonder what the implication, and I identify, I mean, I'm no Agassi, I'm, I'm, I'm just a mere mortal, but um, I identified with the, with the <laughs> defensive range and generalism, um, just, you know, but I think it's hard for us um, in, in the world that wants you to sort of put yourself in a box and say, this is my specialty and this is my project and it's achievable on a short time horizon as opposed to like, I'm a wisdom seeker. How do you, how do you kind of, articulate that goal um, in a world that's kind of always pressuring you to narrow it down. Right. Yeah, I mean, so I'm not, I'm not against expertise. Like, we need it, right? I'm just saying that it's become too dominant and that, that something has been neglected. And also that the kind of interplay between the expert and the generalist is important, right? Um, the experts aren't always right. Um, and sometimes experts need to come up against common sense. There's kind of two different dimensions, I feel like, to expertise. One is the, um, the substantive dimension, as in what are you an expert in? And the other is the social dimension, which is do people give you authority based upon it? And I think what was weird in the ancient times um, is that the people who had the authority, who were given authority, and treated like experts weren't necessarily experts. So for example, um, if you think of the idea of the philosopher king, I mean, I know that's more of a fictionalized account, but like the philosopher king um, doesn't really know medicine, but because they know knowledge, like presumably it trickles down. And like, obviously that doesn't work in practice. You want the person who, I think, Maybe this is a controversial. Maybe this is actually more controversial than I realized I was getting myself into. But I think we want the doctor who knows medicine, even if they don't know philosophy, rather than the philosopher who doesn't know medicine. Um, so as much as I think maybe in the modern times we we put too much of a premium on the expert, um, I, I do think it's maybe coming from a reaction against uh, a regime in which 
um, the wise person had too much authority, even though they didn't actually, you know, they didn't, the devil's in the details and they didn't know how to execute on the details because they just had wisdom in the abstract. Right. I mean, I think it, I think that in a well-ordered society, you need both, right? Um, but look, like the people, but the people who lead, they need political prudence, right? So they need to confer with the experts, but at the end of the day, they have to make a decision about what's best for the whole. So, I mean, just think about things in a COVID context, right? So, <clears throat> you know, the experts had some kind of agreement about what, you know, what was necessary to contain a virus. Some of those experts ended up, you know, being more or less wrong. Just set that aside. Uh, they're doing their best as, as experts at any given point, given their specialized knowledge. But the political leader has to weigh, has to be the one that weighs, for example, you know, individual rights against, right, the need to promote public health. And that is not a question of expertise. It, I mean, it's just the sort of question that goes beyond any expertise. There's no expert answer to that question because it's a dialectical question. It's a political question. And so again, um, any good political leader is going to consult experts, right? But they're still gonna have to make a prudential call and, and, and it's just a different kind of knowledge. And I think that <clears throat> this idea that we can just defer to the experts in all cases, um, it's not true, right? Like an, like an expert is in, an expert about a virus is in no position to balance, you know, constitutional rights. Sure. Absolutely. That's the, the fact value distinction. Just because you know what is doesn't mean you know what ought to be. Or, you know, or as you said, what's prudent. Um, that being the case, like, I think there's the question of who keeps the experts in check. And then there's the, the same question for who keeps the wise people in check. In other words, um, the problem posed to political philosophy has always been accountability. And I think in, the, in a certain idealized view of the ancients who were undem undemocratic um, <laughs> in certain ways, uh, the 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 wise people were checked by wisdom itself or by other wise people, but they were not accountable to the mob. Um, and what's weird in a sort of modern context is that we hold up wisdom as something that we want from leaders, but then we also want people to have a say. And why should people have a say if they're not wise? Right. Yes. Well, that was Plato's question. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Um, look, I mean, in the democracy that you and I, in fact, live in, right, um, there is kind of this critical need for um, the citizen to be educated in a certain way. Um, and that wouldn't have been true for Plato. Um, and so, again, I think it kind of a lot of this boils down to how we are educating our citizens. And um, suffice it to say, I don't think that we're doing a very good job. I'm very on record saying that at all levels. Um, and I think that we need to get very serious about that in this country. Um, and, you know, things that have happened in my lifetime that I think have been so damaging, for example, 
the 2005 legislation, which, by the way, was signed at my high school, No Child Left Behind, uh, was an absolute unmitigated disaster, right? Because it yoked uh, primary and secondary education to these standardized tests. Um, and, and it tied money to performance outcomes. It, it has been a disaster. We need to get rid of it. Um, like we can start there. Um, and, and I, but I would propose in generally um, a, a different model of, of education, one that takes the cultivation of habits of mind and character quite seriously in the name of democracy, by the way. So I have a question on what you just said as it relates to the second part, which is, um, is, the, is the issue with accountability per se, or is it with standardized tests as a way of um, assessing whether people have met the objective? Because if, if the goal is, if the claim is that a certain view of um, our kids' learning isn't, is, is too narrow, it still makes me wonder how you're going to test whether kids are, let's see, achieving those more idealistic things that you described. Like if it's not a standardized test, um, what is the test by which you would know? And, and why should we expect that it won't, let's say, be gamed by a teacher or superintendent who just wants to sort of give the high marks in an effort to get whatever you know, funding is tied to that? Anything can be gamed. I can't come up with an ungameable <laughs> system, right? Because anything can be gamed. Um, and but I but I think that in terms of assessments, um, you know, there's a there's a there's a whole world out there of of classical education um, that has has all different um, approaches to assessment. And I think that we can look at the variety of things going on there and we can have interesting conversations about what we think is best. Um, but the reality is, is that that's all happening in private education. And private education um, is, is good and important. Um, my own children are in private education but in terms of our democracy, like, you know, we need to be thinking about public education because that's where the vast majority of our citizens are. And there what we have is a completely skill-based approach where you have standardized tests that measure certain narrow skills and, um, and then, you know, like funding and all this other stuff is tied to these skill-based outcomes. And... Um, so much gets lost in that, but what especially gets killed in children is love of learning. Um, I mean, that just has been mutilated <laughs> and I think I don't need to convince you that that's a huge problem. For sure. I mean, obviously like I've constructed my entire life around, uh, the pursuit of learning and, uh, based upon a love of learning. And I, I would consider it a successful life if I could impart that to others, um, at the same time, I feel like um, my my res my response is more like it should be both and because love of learning without literacy and numeracy is going to give people this that to your point from lash like the feeling of this is so enjoyable but accompanied by incompetence and sort of in a global in reality of just the world becoming more and more competitive. Uh, more and more people are going to be left behind. I think you kind of have no choice uh, 
but to force people into this skill-based approach. And hopefully you just have to come up with a second bottom line on top of it that gives people the love of learning or figure out how to do that in a way that makes people take pride in the achievement of skills, skill-based learning. And like, there's a line from um, Rebbe Nachman of Bratzlav, the 19th century Hasidic master. Um, he was citing, I think it was Song of Songs. He says, great waters cannot quench, um, great, great waters cannot overcome this love. And he interpreted that verse as the great waters of learning like the great, the great waters of mastery um, cannot take away the love of learning. And when I graduated rabbinical school, like that was the line that I put in my, <laughs> my graduation pamphlet or whatever, because it's like, I've just done 12 years of higher ed and I feel pretty burnt out. Like I could have lost my love of learning in the process of pursuing the thing that I love. So I think that is definitely the occupational hazard of school in general, of anything that's tied to like external metrics um, where you have to sort of prove yourself to a teacher or to others or you're getting certain kind of incentives that are extrinsic but i that's the world we live in is like a world of extrinsic rewards so i feel like that's just a much like that's a very hard problem to f even figure out how to solve <laughs> at an individual level let, let alone a social one so my own personal solution is like no i think like a la maslow's hierarchy like let people like pursue this sort of crude dimension and hopefully in the process they won't be put off or they'll they'll find a way to transcend it but i just don't see how you could get to that transcendent without having some base level of competency you know we're talking about people graduating without the ability to read that seems important to measure <laughs> before you can even love plato it does <laughs> seem important to measure literacy but the question is how are we measuring it and how much of like what you find in contemporary education to a very uh, concerning extent is teaching to the test. And that is what I am trying to address. Of course, they've got to learn how to read, right? But the question is whether or not teaching to these tests is the best way to do it. And I absolutely don't think that it is. I, I absolutely don't think that it is. Um, and so I think we have to look to different models. Um, and the models are there. Um, so, I mean, we, we just might disagree. Yeah, about that's fine. The, like, yeah. I mean, but, but, the, but just to say. There's got to be a test that doesn't. That 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 does that that does allow for love of learning and that can be taught to without canceling out these more idealistic goals. Like I, I certainly agree with the critique of the caricature. I'm sure it, also the caricature is real in many places. I just um, want the win-win where like there's um, where the investment in education leads to competence and also leads to love as opposed to what I often see is almost a polarized world with one, one set of people saying competence is all that matters. And the other is like using love as this mushy thing, love of learning to sort of um, give an out from the fact that like kids also aren't learning. Yeah. Most people don't accuse me of being mushy. <laughs> <laughs> I've been accused of many things. But mushy isn't typically one of them. <laughs> um, 
No, I mean, of course, of course you need skills. And of course you need mastery of those skills. I think that, you know, the real question is in service to what? And, and, I, and I think that broader conception of what it's in service to uh, has been neglected to an extent that is um, a very big problem. So I think we probably agree on that. Yeah. I mean, okay. I also think that, like, you and I both have a religious orientation. So there's something intuitive, I think. I'll speak for myself. You can weigh in on this, that, like, the goal of being alive more generally is to be a servant of God. <laughs> and like, obviously you can't teach that in a school context. It'd be nice if there was like a secular way of giving people a sense of purpose. Uh, maybe oh, I there think is. that there is. Yeah. I think that there is. I mean, um, I think that there's a lot of important work being done on reorienting education to make it um, purposeful you know, in a deeper sense. It's true that um, I think you and I would both agree that in our public schools, um, w you know, we shouldn't have religious instruction um, of any kind. And um, that that be precisely because, um, you know, we recognize a parent's rights in, in that regard um, to raise their kids according to how they understand um religious matters. However, I think that um, there are other ways of addressing what we could just call the transcendent, right? So um, finding meaning and purpose in your life by giving yourself to ends that transcend yourself, right? Common goods, common projects, what are the things that are most important to you and why? Um, those are things that young people need to be thinking about for themselves. And they need to have ways of conceptualizing and understanding it for themselves, regardless of whatever religious tradition they're from or whatever secular, right? I mean, <clears throat> you know, I wasn't raised religious. I was raised totally secular. Um, <clears throat> but even, but but I, you know, <laughs> I can certainly say from experience that that secular kids need that too. Um, they need to understand how to orient themselves. They need to understand what they're willing to sacrifice for and why. Like what are, what are they working for and why? What do they value and why? And you can address those questions without just telling them, well, this is what, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. I think having that sense of purpose in my experience does ease um, the educational, the, the, the pain of just being institutionalized in school for so many hours um, because you have a kind of telos beyond just, I need to ace this test or whatever, or I need to get up, I need to pass this test. Um, it's like, well, why do you need to? Oh, we, you know, right, we <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and I think there are like tools that we can be giving young people um, to help them understand the value of what they're doing. Um, that don't run afoul of, you know, that don't in any way run afoul of, you know, First Amendment concerns or whatever. And that certainly don't amount to any kind of indoctrinization. So you're a philosopher and you're also teaching at a university um, and you're a religious person. And I'm sure for you personally, there's a simpatico or some kind of 
um, way in which the philosophy and the religion overlap, but not all philosophers are religious. Um, 90% of philosophers in the United States identify as an atheist. Wow, that's pretty high. Um, because identifying as an atheist is even a step above just sort of being a kind of... Like not caring. <laughs> lukewarm agnostic <laughs> yeah, or something. That's right. Um, wow. So, right. Um, so this is kind of... This is a, maybe a twofold question. One is like, how does, how does your identity as a philosopher and your identity as a religious seeker or practitioner, however, you know, how, choose your term, relate for you? And then how do you sort of toggle between those two or, or not in, in your public facing role as a teacher? Yeah, so I'm Catholic, right? That's just how I would describe I'm Catholic. And, um, and I'm also a philosopher. I've also only been at public secular schools. Well, I spent some time at Chicago, but, you know, um, so that's private, but still totally secular. Um, and I'm about to move into a secular private school. Um, and for me, you know, I, I mean, I came to religion through philosophy. <laughs> so, like, I entered university, like, a very committed atheist, um, and I came out a Catholic and nobody saw that coming, including me. So, but that, but liberal learning, right. Kind of works that way. You don't, <laughs> you don't really know where it might take you. Um, and so for me, like philosophy and, you know, finding religion that, that was like, they were very intimately bound up for one another, but of course, I'm very aware um, that for many people, that's not the experience. I mean, lots of people study philosophy and will lose their faith. Um, I was kind of the opposite. I don't. I don't think that there's any. I just don't think that in philosophy there's any like guaranteed outcome or something. Like far from it. Uh, philosophy is a, a wild ride. <laughs> you know, you have to, uh, if you're if you're willing to kind of really enter into it. Um, um, but I did make the decision very early on that I was not going to pretend to be something I wasn't right. And that I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't for the purposes of being successful in philosophy professionally going to pretend that I wasn't Catholic. Uh, that was very important to me. Um, that was kind of like just an existential choice that I made, like this is who I am, happy to happy to talk about it, happy to talk about um, why I believe what I believe, happy to get into uh, arguments, right? I mean, I love talking about it, um, but I just wasn't going to hide it. And so that's kind of always how it's been for me. Um, and... You know, it's it's just made things more fun and more interesting. I mean, I just think people bring their whole self to whatever it is that they're doing. Um, I also don't hide the fact that, like, I'm a mom and I'm a wife and I'm Midwestern. This <laughs> is just just who I am. Um, you know, how does and your I, how does your being a Midwestern affect the way that you your temperament as it as it relates to philosophy? I mean, do you know very many Midwesterners? <laughs> uh, I, I know a handful. I mean, I feel like Midwesterners are just like, I don't know. We, we, we kind of try to be like very straight with people. 
we try to be down to earth. Um, we try not to be pretentious, etc. Um, you know, honest. Um, maybe a little bit naive. <laughs> um, com- with, you know, like common sense is very important to Midwesterners. Um, so yeah. Anyway, I'm just very Midwestern. Um, even though I haven't lived in the West uh, for some time now. But, um, yeah, and we try to be friendly. Midwesterners try to be friendly in our own way. Um, we don't really like conflict. So, yeah, I mean, I just, for me, it's not a big deal. And I think that when I perceive that it's a big deal for someone else, like, I'll just try to disarm them. Um, because it's just not a big deal. Like, I'm Catholic, get over it. <laughs> that's kind of my, you know, like if you like if you have a huge problem with it, that's fine. But just like I don't need to hear about it, um, because I certainly don't think that it's reasonable um, to be afraid of my Catholicism um, or to be worried that somehow I, as a Catholic, have have some sort of bad motives or whatever that you like all these fears that you wouldn't have if you didn't know that I was Catholic like that's a, that seems like a you problem and not a me problem um, but at any rate I have a long track record of working well with uh, majority non Catholics right <laughs> right um, and and I thrive in those spaces. And yeah, I mean, I've just, I've never been in a Catholic school for all I know. Uh, it would be terrible for me. I, I mean, I just, it's just not my experience. Um, yeah. Well, it seems like, it seems like the liberal arts experience allowed you to pursue a life of faith, um, which was unexpected. But one thing that religious institutions sometimes have um, in their more conservative expressions is a fear um, that you indicated, which is that it that that pursuing the truth or your understanding of it might lead you out of the faith, and so there can be a defensiveness. Uh, it it doesn't always seem both ways; like it goes both ways. The liberal allows a person to be to stay liberal or to leave, whereas the non-liberal is would see it as a lack of educational success or something if the person you know went off the path I don't know how how to put it exactly yeah yeah I mean I think that there are um in any institutions examples of bad teaching right and there are cases where you can find in higher education um professors who will um demonize religious people or demonize religion and they'll do it in the classroom. Yeah, I think um, that's bad, obviously. Of course, that's terrible. Where, right? where, where, I'm, where I'm coming from the, from the question is like, so I think there's um, a potential tension between pedagogy and indoctrination. Um, and so um, as I think of pedagogy, I think of it as like an, almost like an open space where you can experience dialogue, different points of view. Um, it, take on uh, all kinds of views that you might, you know, try them on without having to fully commit to them. And then indoctrination is trying to form you as a person and get you to identify with the tradition, whatever that tradition is, you could be indoctrinated into liberalism. And so from a pedagogic point of view, like the success 
is was the person introspective? Did they do perspective taking? Um, not, you know, did they, was their curiosity awakened? You know, did they think about things differently? But it's not, did they reach the conclusion that I wanted them to reach? Um, and then I think from a more religious or ideological point of view, it doesn't even have to be religious, like success is, <laughs> are they more committed to our team or something like that? Right, exactly. And I mean, as a philosopher, right, I'm not, my goal isn't to get you to assent to certain propositions, right? It's to get you to enter into dialectic. It's to get you thinking. It's to initiate you into a tradition. Um, it's to help you better understand what you believe and why, right? That's, that's, I think, the real value of philosophy. And of course, philosophy is not theology, right? theology as I understand it isn't indoctrination, but it does require a certain set of first principles that are a matter of faith, right? And and I've argued in print, right, that, that theology should be taught at our universities um, and not just religious studies. Um, but, it's just, but I'm just not a theologian. Um, I hang out with theologians. I learn a lot from them. I'm fascinated by it. I engage it in my podcast, but it's just not my training and it's not what I'm doing. Um, I'm a philosopher and I, and I love being a philosopher. And I, and of course I I don't find them incompatible or at odds with one another. Um, philosophy and theology should, should be friends. (laughs) And, And it makes sense. I mean, if you had to pick a religion, Catholicism is a good one to pick. Um, Judaism would have been a good one too, but um, <laughs> maybe more more hard to get into. Um. <laughs> well, yeah. I, it's true. It's definitely true. Um, but yeah, I mean, I actually think Catholicism is, is a really Jewish religion. But we can have that conversation another time. But perfect. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think I think like these sort of um, older traditions give a lot of dignity to the rational faculty, whereas obviously like in more evangelical um, and and sort of pietistic, mystical expressions of Christianity and other forms of religion, there's a fear of reason, um, right? You get that in Kierkegaard as well. So Yes, for sure. I will say though, um, one of the really surprising gifts of the past 10 years of my life has been like really extraordinary intellectual exchange with evangelicals. Um, that I think has reshaped the way I relate to and think about evangelicals. Um, and I think that evangelicalism is, um, is changing in that regard, at least evangelicalism as it finds itself in universities. Um, and some, one thing that I've learned just through experience is that a lot of my maybe stereotypes about evangelicals uh, just didn't, just weren't true, <laughs> right? They, they just weren't true. Um, I mean, I do think that in their theological tradition, you're absolutely correct. Um, but I think in practice now, um, I just I just find a different landscape. Um, yeah. Great. And then um, I, I re- did you study under John McDowell or am I? Yes, I did. So mm-hmm. I was curious because he is one of those thinkers whose name comes up a lot um, as somebody who married 
um, the continental and the analytic traditions. Meaning, and again, like I don't really know him so well, but um, somebody who, let's say, read Heidegger and Husserl and also came to conclusions um, that feel aligned with the phenomenological tradition. So I was, I'd be curious if you have any like anecdotes about him as a teacher, mentor, like sort of what did you get from him and how has, how has he shaped you? John is wonderful. Um, and I, and I'm so grateful that, you know, I got to pit in enough time to study with him and work with him. Um, John was classically educated, right? So Right, and you know, growing up learning Greek and Latin and studying classical texts, and then at Oxford studied with Galen Strawson, and um, never never bothered with his PhD. Just you know, started professing um, back in the day when you could still do that, and um, is just really an an enormously powerful intellect. But John is. Um, John is a very humble man. I mean, that that's, that's first and foremost what I would say about him. Um, and in conversation with him, he is not trying to beat you or compete with you. He's like very patient and listening and will say things um, that, you know, are maybe surprising but will take you down a different path, tries to be encouraging, tries to be helpful. Um, he's terrific. And I think that he's the kind of intellect that is genuinely curious, right? Genuinely curious and open and, um, and generous. I would say that he has a generous intellect. Um, he's just really, just, just really great. And of course, is the kind of person that um, would never be online, <laughs> would never be uh, doing any of that. He's just a, a very traditional kind of scholar um, who is happy to write a scholarly bit on, you know, Aristotle and then also just get into very technical analytic stuff, um, but then also is 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 working with Hegel and I mean I think he just is someone who's just very deeply invested in trying to figure it out right um and and is interested in different traditions that he thinks might might help him do that um he's he's really an incredible exemplar of the intellectual life well that's a great tribute I think to end this conversation on uh, and uh, thank you for all the work that you do, um, modeling these these traits and being an advocate for uh, the life of the soul and not just the life of the intellect, <laughs> and uh, and emphasizing the importance of moral character alongside uh, studiousness. So I wish you uh, great success in your new role and uh, looking forward to more conversations ahead. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me on. This was so fun. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, zoharatkins.com, 
And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.